Hi, I'm Trevor Cochran and this is The Garden Gurus Live, a weekly show where I'll share seasonal gardening advice, feature a variety of gardeners from all across Australia and give listeners the opportunity to interact and ask your garden questions. To join the chat live and ask your gardening questions, all you need to do is like our Facebook page and tune in every Friday at 12pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. This program is brought to you by The Garden Gurus and Scott's Performance Naturals. Scott's Performance Naturals is the 100% natural and sustainable way to grow and feed your garden. Backed by years of research and developed by scientists, the technology employed enhances natural processes, allowing extra strong growth. The Performance Naturals range contains organic materials such as Nature-N, blood and bone, seaweed, biostimulants, manure and feather meal to improve the soil, and encourage microbial and earthworm activity. To find out more about the Scott's Performance Naturals range, head to lovethegarden.com.au. Hello and welcome to The Garden Gurus Live. I'm Trevor Cochran and it's my absolute pleasure to host our session this afternoon. It's our second Friday afternoon show. Uh, Early evening if you're on the East Coast, of course it's just turned 7pm. And I'm really looking forward to getting stuck into today's show with you. Now, there's a couple of really amazing interviews coming up today and uh, a bit later on, I'm gonna share something with you that is absolutely revolutionary. One of the most fascinating interviews that I've ever done. And it all relates to being able to light up your garden naturally with plants that actually glow in the dark, that emit light themselves. I'll be joining or sharing my interview at least, I should say, with Boston scientist Arjun Kakar, where he explains one of nature's more spectacular tricks. It is absolutely incredible. Of course, I've got my good mate, David Van Berkel from Garden Express joining me, and he's got a brilliant offer for you just in time for Australia Day. And Love the Garden, well, we'll have somebody from Love the Garden joining us a bit later on, who are gonna share, well, some pretty incredible tips on how to bring your plants back from the dead. There's a lot of people who left their indoor plants in the office over the break, came home to, or came back to work only to find them really suffering, so we'll, we'll share that. And of course, I've got my plant of the week. And remember, look, this is all about asking your gardening questions, solving your garden problems. And the best way to do it is just to type in your question, make sure you let us know where you're from, ideally suburb or town, and of course, definitely state. It really helps me a lot because I get to understand exactly what sort of climate you're in. And um, I think we might fly straight into a few questions because Max from Queensland, he wants to know the difference between a dragon fruit and a moonlight cactus, or moon cactus as they're known, um, because they do look similar and he's looking at how to uh, identify them. Well, simply, um, simply the difference between the two, that's the easiest one is the moonlight cactus. They're both epiphytic cactus or epiphyllums. And the moonlight has, or the moon cactus has flat leaves. So it grows all flat. Of course, it produces beautiful big flowers at night. Now, the dragon fruit, it tends to be um, more of a triangle, if that's the best way to describe it, um, and uh, long, quite thick canes. Now, that's the simple way to do it without seeing the flowers or seeing the fruit. Um, but it does, it really does um, help you when you are selecting them if you've got some cuttings of both and they get a bit mixed up. Now, he's also asked about how to improve his pepino fruits. Pepino is a melon, so it's um, cute little melons, and you get these little round melons like this. 
and um, they produce a lot of them um, off some lovely little beautiful blue flowers. And the more of these little melons that you have like this, you'll find um, the, the better your, your table is. The desserts with these things are just sensational. But getting them into flour is a real key because what you want to do is you want to basically um, encourage them to flower, but make them feel a little bit on the dry side, like they're a little bit threatened, so they've got to produce fruit. And that's the key on getting lots and lots of pepino. So as soon as they come into flower, back the water off and you'll be in great shape. Now, Thomas from the Blue Mountains, how do you get rid of Wandering Jew? Now, this is a quite a bad weed. Actually, I've got it in my garden too, and I'm spending a lot of time uh, digging it up and, uh, and pulling it out. And uh, really, look, the best way to do it is to actually just pull it out by hand. But if it's going to seed and producing lots of seed, you're going to have lots of new plants emerging. So once you've gone through and done a weeding, get a three-prong hoe or cultivator out and just... Um, Give it a good scratch because, you know, there's nothing like a good hoe in the garden. Really get your soil going well and nice and healthy because you're getting all the air in there. And air's important too. Now, Tella in Aberdeen. Tella's got to be one of our favourite friends. She just follows everything we're doing. Thanks for writing in, Tella, and telling us exactly where you are. Um, do I deadhead flowers of my hydrangea? Now, I'm not sure, Maysil Revolution, I think, is what you've written down here. I'm not, I reckon that could be Magical Revolution. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It's, it's kind of a bit of a standard line with this. And the answer is no, not at the moment. Wait until they're going deciduous in the autumn and then go through and give them a prune back. And you should prune them back down to double buds. So you'll see, as soon as the leaves are dropped off, you'll see clear buds where there's going to be new growth emerge. And when you've got those nice big double buds on either side of the growth stem, that's where new flower will come from next flowering period or next growth period. So I hope that answers. Tell us, it'll leave them on there at the moment. In fact, a lot of people actually collect them these days and they dry them and then dip them in a colour, blue ink or something like that, and uh, use them as a dried flower arrangement. Now, we're coming all the way back over to Western Australia and Karen from Rolly Stone wants to know how to get and keep ants off her frangipani. Now, it's looking pretty good at the moment. Um, there's a, a photo that she's posted that I can see, and it's, um, it's not in a pot, and the plants are, and the ants, I should say, are in the flowers as well as on the ground. And, and look, ants love lots and lots of nectar. And I reckon they're acting as a bit of a pollinator for your frangipani, but the downside to too many ants sometimes can be that they can be farming uh, scales and, and even moving aphids around the plant who feed the ants, ants in a um, symbiotic relationship. So my sort of simple solution is if you're just annoyed with the ants and you're worried about them bringing some pests in, the easiest way to get rid of them is to grab yourself some talcum powder and just powder around the base of the frangipani. So um, basically put a circle around the outside and the ants won't cross over the talcum powder. When you look at an ant under a microscope, it's kind of got armour all over it. And right in the joints, it's kind of free. And what it hates is something that gets in and sticks in there. And talcum powder is so fine, it gets in and it makes them really uncomfortable and, and itchy. And they get up and they'll move away and they won't come back because they'll remember that there's talcum powder there. So good way to move them away without using chemicals. Now, Debbie, uh, we're not sure where you're from, Debbie. Really important, folks, to make sure you let us know where you're from. And also really important also to highlight this point. If you like what we're doing, please like it. Please actually click like on your, uh, on your page and let us know. It really helps and it lets your friends know as well. 
Debbie wanted to know about the pros and cons of using Epsom salts in the garden. Now, why would you use Epsom salts? Well, Epsom salts are magnesium sulfate and uh, magnesium is a great greener of plants. So if you're mixing Epsom salts up in water and watering it over the foliage and even into the ground, the plant will suck up all of that, um, that nutrient that's in there and it should give your, your leaves a beautiful dark green gloss. Um, the same occurs with iron and nitrogen is the other great greener as far as the, the key elements that you go for. But most people will use Epsom salts if they're in sandy soils and they're starting to see the foliage on their plants look a little bland, a little like it's lost its colour, it's lost its vigour and you want to stimulate that back, then water with Epsom salts over the foliage for sure. But don't go doing it too many times. And Debbie sent us a note to say she's from New South Wales, so it applies definitely in New South Wales too. Thanks, Debbie. Eileen's in Donnybrook. Donnybrook is in the south of Western Australia, one of the most beautiful places. And she's asking, is there any way of encouraging a pumpkin vine to produce more female flowers? So interesting thing about pretty much all the concubits is that they'll need a male and a female and then you'll need bees to pollinate them. And uh, sometimes you'll find that they don't produce as many male or sometimes as many female flowers. And it's all got to do with humidity, believe it or not. So if you're finding that you're getting not enough female flowers and so not enough fruit set, the trick is go around, cut all the growth tips, all those stalks that are heading off in the out, out runners that are going off in the outside directions away from the, the base of the plant, um, trim them around, go and get the hose and give it a good water. It does two things. One is that um, the humidity will assist in the, uh, in the setting of fruit uh, and two, because you've stopped it from putting all the energy into the runners, all the energy will come back into the flower and the setting fruit. So it'll set very quickly. So good little trick there. Eileen, I hope that helps you. Daisy, we're not sure where you're from, Daisy, but you've asked a good question. She's got a Duranta Reapin, Sheena Gold. It's one of my favourites. It's absolutely beautiful. And she'd like to have new branches from the middle trunk. So Durantas have a habit of growing quite leggy if you don't keep trimming them and keeping them compact. And I'd say that's what's happened here. Now she's trying to encourage growth in the middle, but what tends to happen is they grow on the outside. So what they call terminal growth. So you've got to try and stimulate that and it's very hard once you've got uh, a canopy over the top. You can make something called a singer, which is basically, if you can imagine that's your, your growth stem, um, you get a pair of secateurs just like this, and I'm not going to do this of course, but you get it and you run the blade on the inside, around the outside of the tissue, the bark on the outside, and you do it again in a little line and you just cut a little incision and you peel the bark off. Now what this does is as the nutrient is flushing up uh, through, the, through the cambium layer, up the stem to go up and provide nutrient and, and uh, obviously moisture to the leaves above, it can't get through that area anymore. So it pushes it all up. And if there's any growth buds that are sitting in that, if you can see any growth buds, sometimes you can't, um, any growth buds that are there will have all that nutrient going up, unable to go beyond that. So it'll push into the buds and it should push out new growth. Now you don't want to do it too many times because you could risk ring barking the plant, but certainly two or three of them in around that sort of area should stimulate some new growth buds. And once you see the growth buds coming out of there, you want to start cutting the top of the plant to encourage basically all the goodness to keep going into those new growth buds and bushing it out.
Gee, I hope that makes some sense. Uh, very, very detailed. Daisy, I hope that helps you. Kerry's in Victoria. Hello, Kerry. This is a, a really good question. As a renter, she's un, uh, unwilling to pay uh, for major work in a garden, but she's got a really heavy clay soil and it just goes from bog to concrete depending on the weather. Can I suggest some easy care trees and shrubs for an area on the north of her yard? Well, look, you know, heavy soils can be a big challenge, but there's some plants that love them. You know, I was talking to David Van Burkle just last week and he happened to mention that he has got some really beautiful um, silver birch in his garden that are just taken off. Now, birch love those heavier soils. So there's an example of plants that are, are able to handle that quite well. Um, you can also change the structure of the soil by getting more oxygen into it, more air into the soil and breaking it up. And that's where things like clay breaker, which is actually just a, a form of lime, uh, or gypsum, which is another form of lime, spread out over the top and then cultivated into the topsoil will start to get it all crumbly and, and make it sort of work. So I hope that might work for you. Um, there's a couple of options there for you. Maureen is from Muckenbudden. Hello, Maureen. Muckenbudden is a fantastic place, one of my favourites in the country, and it's in the sort of wheat belt, I suppose, of Western Australia, and she's got a lovely poinciana tree. And the thing about poinciana's is they love hot, dry conditions. She grew it by seed probably 12 to 15 years ago, but it's never flowered. And uh, it, gets back knocked, it gets knocked back, I should say, a bit with frosts, but it's very tall. Is there anything you can do to get it to flower? My granddad's old trick was leaning an ax up against it, and just that threat sometimes is enough to trigger it. But the truth of the matter is that actually dry conditions will do it. So you, if you can stress the plant just a bit, so make sure you've got no water going to it, um, you should start to see it stress. It'll drop a little bit of foliage, it might yellow a little bit, but it should trigger some flowering. And you've got to do it right now because really they should be flowering right at this moment. Generally when plants are just producing lots of foliage, they're very, very happy. I hope that helps Maureen. Now I did mention that last week uh, we had a fair bit of inspiration coming our way because we had David Van Burkle join us and he got talking about all the great things going on at Garden Express. But one of the things that he mentioned was, uh, was his beautiful um, silver birch. So got me thinking about some spots and when, we, when we're talking about heavy soil before, I've got some heavy soil in the bottom of my garden and that's what I'm gonna do, David. I'm gonna get six of them and put in there in a, in a nice sort of grove of silver birch trees because don't they look fantastic? Yeah, they're amazing, Trevor. And it's, uh, you know, I've seen parts of your garden. I know the spot you're talking about is going to be just fabulous. Mm, but uh, good water. They do, they need that water, don't they? Yes, yeah, for sure, for yeah. sure. But, you know, like it's, uh, it gets hot and dry and they can handle that quite well as, you know, um, as long as they get that fresh sprinkling of water from time to time. We just got talking about uh, Australia Day and, and uh, things that you should be doing. Australia Day is a very good trigger to be purchasing bulbs and you were mentioning to me that um, really it's probably Easter is when they should go into the garden? Certainly Easter after the, the heat of summer has gone and then yeah. the ground starts to cool a little bit, Trevor, and, and that's the perfect time to put the bulbs in. And I mentioned I was pretty staggered at this deal that you've come up. So you've got your Australia Day favourites collection and you can talk through what they are in a second, but I've, I know that, that we've got them before and they're sort of somewhere between that sort of $85 and $90 mark. 87.30 at the moment, but you've got this ridiculously good deal for 225 bulbs. Tell us what it is. 
225 bulbs. It's uh, all of the favourites, Trevor, designed to give you a really great display uh, on, a, on a really good budget price of $29. That is just an incredible price. Anemones, um, the poppy style, so those beautiful, beautiful singular flowers. Wind flowers, um, yeah. Ranunculi, one of my favourites. Absolutely. Ascari, the beautiful blue grape hyacinths. Um, when you see those sort of fields of them in flower, that's one of my favourite sites of, of all sites. I think it's up there with the fields of, um, of tulips at your place. Um, Spraxias and freesias as well. Freesias, yeah. I've got to have a little bit of flavour. So the scent of the freesias is, uh, is wonderful. And I agree with you. The muscarai is just beautiful, usually flowering around the time of the yellow daffodil. So you've got that delicious contrast of the, yeah, of the yellow. Yeah. Yep. So you can, you can kind of plant them together, right? Absolutely, yes. You could multi-plant them in a, in a large tub if you wanted to and they'll just come up one after the other or spread them across your garden and, and get really good value across a few metres of garden bed. Mate, you've lived and breathed bulbs your whole life. It's been, you know, it's just one of those those things in your family. I mean, I don't think you can be Dutch and not love bulbs and, and grow them, but in your family, I, I couldn't imagine the millions and millions of bulbs that you guys have been able to deliver to Australian gardens over the years. It's just it's endless, isn't it? it it's mind-boggling. You know, I, th I think we put together about uh, about five million bulbs each season into wow. uh, into packs for gardeners. So yeah, it's pretty crazy. And um, this obviously this is the time with Australia Day coming up, time to be able to buy. You buy them, you get them home, keep them in a cool spot. It's, a lot of people put them say put them in the crisper and keep them at two or three degrees. Is that is that the best advice? Yeah, crisper really only probably for your tulips, Trevor, and and maybe right. the hyacinths. But most of these spring flowering bulbs come from some of those you know warmer climates. Uh, South Africa presents a lot of the bulbs that we sell. Yeah, um, and and definitely the crisper, not the freezer. Yeah, yeah, right. I've, yep. I've seen, yep. seen what happens when people do that as well, mate. It, yep. It's. Pretty important also to plant bulbs in the right spot. I know um, some of the best displays I get are under the shade of some of my trees, the deciduous trees. As soon as they've basically dropped their foliage, the bulbs just start pushing through the ground and you go from, you know, the, the feature of the tree to suddenly this massive colour coming out. Is that one of the best uh, planting suggestions you would give? Absolutely. Like that's one of the symbiotic relationships that you get in gardening, the uh, – the, the falling leaves, the autumn leaves, fertilise the bulbs really well at the appropriate time. The, um, the shade cover provided by the leaves, they, uh, it, it protects them from those warmer days in summer when the bulbs are dormant. Um, yep. And absolutely, as you said, once the sunlight gets to them after winter, uh, beautiful bloom starts to come up. Things to the, it's that promise, isn't it? It's the things to look forward to. And, you know, I, I tend to find in my environment, which is very hot and dry, that sort of the peak of summer is when I rest the soil, it gets a chance to rest and recover, and we don't put anything under any real pressure. And then uh, basically once we sort of, once we get our first rains, it's for me it's about March I start thinking about preparing the soil. Is there a couple of tricks you'd give to preparing soil before you go planting your bulbs? Absolutely. Fill that soil with uh, with your nice humus compost, mm -hmm. um, preferably something a little bit aged, but whatever you put in your garden, give it about six weeks. It will feed that garden bed up, ready to accept your bulbs, and then they will burst off. The roots will just love it. Uh, it gives them a good foundation for resettling into a new position. 
Absolutely brilliant advice, David. Now, listen, um, we'll just con- just confirm that deal again because I, I, I keep reading it and going, no, that just can't be right. 225 bulbs, right? Normally $87.30, only $29, but this is only your Australia Day special. The saving is 65%. Did I get that right? You got all of that right, Trev, for a limited time. Uh, as I said, a gift to uh, Australian gardeners and a welcome back into the new year. You worry me, mate. I'm worried you're not making any money out there and you're just working out in those fields for nothing. It's, it's just giving them away. We want people to try bulbs, Trevor. If you haven't tried them before, the more people that will take up this offer, the more they'll, uh, you know, espouse the, the values of bulb gardening and add them under all their other plants. Now, mate, I know that it's um, 7.38 over there at the moment, so something else you should be trying is the produce that comes from the vine, I believe, and I reckon you might be heading off for a glass of wine. I'm just about out there, mate, just about, but I held (laughs) off until after this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Well done. I love your discipline. Thanks very much for joining us, David. We'll look forward to seeing you next week. Visit the Garden Guru's online store and browse through a collection of high-quality, German-made Wolfgarten tools. You'll also find a range of books with information to help create and maintain a beautiful garden. You can also access the online store on the Garden Guru's Facebook page. Use the code GURUS for free shipping on orders over $30. Offer ends 31st of October. Now, um, we're just going to keep moving along because I, I wanted to talk about, just talking about uh, poinciana trees, which the poinciana is one of the most beautiful. And yesterday I was up in the country in a place called Mora and uh, they had uh, one of the most lovely trees. If you live in a cooler climate, you can have some, a tree called Laburnum Vossi. They grow really well in that, and they've got these wonderful golden cascading flowers that just hang down. It's, it's a gorgeous tree, but if you're in the, in the hot conditions, they won't grow. But there's, of course, like Mother Nature always provides, there is actually some trees that do exceptionally well in that environment. One is the golden shower tree. And... Um, that combined with my poinciana's at home, along with my frangipanis, give me the most pleasure when it comes to summertime. They're just fantastic. And the frangipani trees that I've got are super advanced trees, some of them 60 plus years old, that were once growing in somebody else's garden, but were about to, the house that they'd been planted in was about to be knocked down, and I transplanted them across and, and literally as full mature trees, popped them into the ground. Frangipanis are a really easy uh, plant to grow, and I'm sure just about everybody's had a shot at growing them from cutting, but there's something you do about them that is completely different, and this is the interesting thing about it. The completely different thing about frangipanis is when you take your cutting, you don't put it in the ground straight away. In fact, you leave it laying on the ground for maybe a day or two this time of the year to make sure it's dried right out, that that white sap that you'll see has dried and hardened. And if you've got that, well, then you pop it into some really good potting mix. And the good thing about a frangipani cutting is you can take one probably three, four, five foot tall sometimes, pop them into a big pot full of potting mix and get the most amazing results. So I think that that's got to be my plant of the week. I love the tropical flowering trees this time of the year. Frangipanis are at their best. And one of the things that I did note about frangipanis was we were in Europe last year and doing a bit of work and noticed that the garden centres in Europe now don't necessarily all just sell plants. A lot of them sell cuttings. So they were selling frangipani cuttings. This is in Holland, believe it or not, and also bougainvillea cuttings. So you'd buy them as a long cutting like this, delivered to you in the mail, 
take it out, it'll have wax on either end just to stop the, the cutting from drying out. You peel the wax off, pop it in the ground, and bang, it'll take off. And they make the most fantastic, fantastic pot plants. So I think we're, uh, I think we, have we solved our, our problem? We're, we're still, oh, great, okay. Well, look, when, we're going to be back with David in just a second. But last night, I had the absolute pleasure of catching up with a senior scientist. Now, this is Arjun Kakar from Flagship Pioneering. This is a firm based um, in the US, they're in Boston, and they've been doing some amazing research on bioluminescent plants and how they could be used in so many fantastic ways. So here's the interview, I think you're gonna love it. Arjun, thank you so much for joining us this evening. In fact, for you, it's early morning there in Boston. What's the weather like in Boston at the moment? Oh, gosh, you know, it's it's chilly but manageable. <laughs> right. So what's chilly at the moment? Oh, God. Uh, you know, I think it's hovering around zero right now. Around zero? Um, yeah. Yeah. We've had sort of consistent 40 to 42 degrees celsius in uh, in western australia here so we're definitely on opposite sides of the planet. <laughs> but you know what yeah perth is a beautiful place though you know i was actually potentially going for a, a, to a job at the university of western australia and oh. man i envy your beaches uh they are beautiful beaches we're very look australia is full of incredible destinations so you've got to get over here and check it out at some point oh i'd love to yeah now arjun you're field of research, this project that you've worked on, I find absolutely fascinating. This idea of autoluminescent plants, this plants that glow in the dark. Tell me a little bit about, you know, take us right back to the beginning and what you guys have actually done. It's incredible. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, you know, Trevor, the, the, the thing that really led us to try and develop this technology was um, uh, I was working in a lab, um, uh, the lab of Dan Voitis um, at the University of Minnesota. And um, we were really interested in um, studying what was happening within the plant. You know, how genes were affecting um, different parts of how the plant grew and behaved. Mm -hmm. And um, to do, it's a, this is really sort of difficult thing to do. And um, uh, one of the ways that we do it is we, we study, we, we use these things called reporters which um, tell us how gen genetics in the plants are functioning in a way that we can easily see. And, you know, one of the easiest things to see is light. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you, you know, there are creatures in nature that produce light, you know, the jellyfishes in the deep ocean. Yep. Um, and, um, and one of these kinds of creatures is a kind of fungus. And a while back, researchers had identified a couple of genes from this fungus that um, were responsible for turning a chemical into light um, by breaking down this particular chemical. And so what we did was we basically took those genes from the fungus and figured out how to put them into a plant so that the plant could turn one of its chemicals into light. Wow. And by hooking that system up to the, to the genetics that we were studying, we were able to see when genes are getting turned on or off by when the plants produce light. You see, Arjun, this is the difference between you and me. You see, I was reading your research thinking, what a wonderful way to get cheap garden lighting and light up your pathways. <laughs> That's incredible. Oh, well, you know, I mean, Trevor, no, we're not that different because, I mean, 
that that's absolutely something that you know really excites me about this work as well mm-hmm. um so you know by training i'm a synthetic biologist and so my motivation for most things is always just to make cool plants yeah um and uh and this is definitely you know a cool kind of plant to make and um to your point actually there are there is a company called light bio in um america right now um that uh, is a, a collaboration between um uh, uh a couple of people one of whom uh, Karen Sastrakhan um published actually another publication um that was in parallel with ours that would talked about uh, the same technology and his group actually is the one that discovered those genes in the fungus right and um and they're actually trying to make things like what you were talking about you know plants that would light up a garden or um or you know just in for regular people including grass right so there's a possibility that you could have grass that glows at night in the dark. Yeah, so um I don't know if they're doing that. Um the Voidus lab I think is pursuing that as are other scientific collaborators of ours. Um and and yeah, I think it's absolutely possible um to produce something like that. So the the interesting thing I find with this is that is that this is um this is a technology that you know when you look at it on the outside it it can kind of change everything for us. Initially the plants that you used i believe were tobacco right but there's been you've gone to tomatoes for example um there's other plants i think that have been used in some of the trials the the, the bit that seems to be really fascinating is that these plants are effectively being lit, lit up by their own living energy isn't it yeah that's absolutely right so um the way sort of um the the system actually works is it takes a chemical um that plants naturally produce yeah. um as part of the reaction to make um pieces of their um cell walls their you know the structural components of the plants and um and it turns that from what it, the chemicals it would ordinarily become um into this chemical that can be broken down to produce light that's sort of how things work um and so uh and and yeah so it's using the energy of the plant and its own chemicals to just make this light and there's no negative or detrimental effect on the plants and its growth in emitting energy this way yeah no apparently not so you know we compared plants that that were that had these genes in them to plants that were just wild type and didn't yeah. um, and we didn't really see any kind of effects on growth um or uh development uh however we've only as you mentioned looked at tobacco yeah um uh, we know that it this the system works in a bunch of other plants when we just temporarily put the genes in there yeah. but it's only tobacco that we've actually put the genes into its genome so it's always it's always glowing you know wow it's just it's just incredible technology now i i know this there's a lot of people out there that have concerns about um genetically modifying organisms and what are the risks of of these genes being moved from one species for example you know tomatoes and tobacco are a good example where uh, viruses can move between the two what's the chance of 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 that occurring where you know a genetically modified plant could jump into a wild plant and then start to change the way they they are naturally is there, is there a possibility or are there safeguards you put in place Yeah Trevor that's a great question so I should before you know like at just at the very beginning say you know for anyone who's sort of worried about that aspect of this work um 
our, like I said, initially, our interest in this is academic, is, you know, designing tools for science. Yeah. And so everything that we're doing is really in a, you know, very contained lab setting. We never put stuff out um, outside of, you know, uh, our laboratory. And so there's no chance of that escaping into the wild. Yeah. Now, um, however, uh, you know, let's say, you know, this company um, or, or anyone else who makes a plant for the public um, if you did engineer a plant to have these genes in its genome, um, how would that get into the wild? Well, genes don't just sort of, you know, sort of magically jump from a plant to many other plants. The way it actually happens is um, they, uh, your, your, your engineered plant breeds with some very closely related plant. Um, so, you know, for example, let's say you made a bioluminescent grass. Yep. The way that that bioluminescence could spread is if that grass bred with some grass it's very closely related to that was growing nearby. Yes. Um, and and so that that is potentially possible, you know. Um, and so uh, there are ways to prevent that from happening. And a lot of uh, you and and indeed, if ever a genetically modified organism is actually sold commercially there are a lot of regulations that, that look at exactly these sorts of things, environmental yeah. impact and stuff. And so, you know, one of the really popular ways that people use to prevent genetically modified traits from getting out into the environment is by making the plants sterile. Yes. So they, they cannot breathe, you know, they don't produce any kind of reproductive um, yeah. pollen and things like that. So in the, in the case of grass, it would have to be an asexual propagation. So you'd be, breaking the grass up and spreading it that way, not, not through, through breeding seed as such. Yeah, probably. Yeah. So yeah. I, I would say again, you know, th there are, there are people who are, you know, experts at producing these sorts of commercial transgenic varieties. And um, that, that isn't something that, you know, I focus very heavily on. And so, you know, um, that, that, that's, you know, sort of my, my sort of no knowledge about it. Yeah. Arjun, it's, it's a fascinating field. It really is. And, um, you know, it kind of makes you wonder about what the world will be like in the future. I know that one of the reasons or one of the considerations that you've put into place with regards to this is, is the threat to, to honeybees in the US as a pollinator. Um, you know, populations have been decimated and some bee species have disappeared altogether, haven't they? So, you know, the consideration to get a a plant to glow at night um, will actually put it in a situation where it's probably attracting other pollinators, moths and, and night active insects, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that is one of the, you know, we actually have a collaborator at the University of Washington, uh, Takara Mizumi, who, who is actually exploring this exact idea um, in Petunia, you know, to see, can we actually create these kinds of new plant pollinator interactions? And that's one of the interesting applications of this technology um, for the future. But, you know, I think one of the really sort of uh, challenging things about science is, um, is very, very, you know, for a scientist like myself, science is beautiful. In a, just the pursuit of it is just this amazing thing that, you know, fills my life with joy. Um, but for someone who doesn't do science every day, it can be sort of hard and esoteric to connect with. Yes. But once in a while, you have science, sort of like these bioluminescent plants, that are just sort of universally exciting. Yeah. And, um, and that, I think, is also one of the really powerful things about this sort of synthetic biology in plants is that 
it has the capacity to just get, you know, an average person who doesn't do any science any day to be really excited. Yeah. Well, I think, look, you know, go back to the original purpose of what this is all about and, and not what the potential could be, but but the initial purpose of being able to better understand how plants function and, and being able to light them up, you know, to light them up, those important genes up so you understand how it works and how it's metabolism in, and, and how it photosynthesizes and things like that. They're, they're very important things for the future understanding of plants and how we care for them as well. So it's obviously vitally important research, no matter where it ends up in the end, but it, it's fascinating. And I'm so grateful that you took some time out to share with us, to be able to talk this through. It's, it's just incredible. My pleasure, Trevor, my pleasure. Uh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thanks, Arjun. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much. Take care. Garden Express are Australia's leading mail-order gardening service, offering a wide range of quality garden products. Each week on the Garden Gurus Live, the team at Garden Express will share a weekly offer. So make sure after today's show, you jump online and visit their website. Wow. How amazing is that? I just love Arjun's passion for what he's doing and what an incredible story. Imagine you know, this whole thing of your, your garden glowing at night because certain plants are actually just through their life force emitting energy and as a consequence uh, actually glowing, actually lighting up the garden. It was probably for me one of the most revealing stories. It really got me thinking so much about where the future goes. Anya, I'm not sure where you're from, Anya, but uh, she, she just said, uh, glow in the dark plants. Then possibly the flowers can emit light as well. And the answer is yes, they can. How wonderful will it be to see multicolored lights dancing in your garden? I know that um, some of the work they've been doing has been with petunias and you know, obviously the, the beautiful colors of petunias. Could you imagine them glowing like that? It is incredible. What an amazing story. And I think that's a story that's got a lot to come. Now, look, we'll keep rolling through your questions because they're, they're flowing through now. And remember, like our page, it shares it with your friends and it gets a lot more uh, activity going on, which is just fantastic. And I'm going to answer your questions as well, including Jodie's from New South Wales. Now, Jodie, we're just talking about frangipanis. She's got frangipanis, she's grown from cutting, but when the winter frosts arrive, it dies off. Now, even though she's covering it with plastic and trying to protect it, is there any secrets to keeping them alive over winter? Now, I've got to tell you, the, the really cold environments is where it's really difficult. And if you can get them to survive the first two or three years and covering them with plastic is one way to do it, putting a hessian cover over the top is another way. And when the frosts do arrive, turning your sprinklers on over the plant. So as soon as the temperatures get above freezing, watering over the plant so that the, the leaves are not crystallised with that water as it, as it freezes. Those are ways you can help get the frangipanis through, but um, there's no guarantees when you're in a really cold climate. So they're probably my secrets there. There is one other thing that um, is often done, and I know growers use it extensively, that's putting sea salt, so the seaweed extract over the foliage, giving it a water the night before, you're expecting frosts, and more often than not, uh, there's something that's inside the sea salt, it's a natural plant hormone that fortifies the leaves, it stops them from being damaged by that extreme cold, or it's, at least it reduces it anyway. Now, we've got Rita in Red Hill in Victoria, and she says, hi Trev, we've got a worm farm and we've got some good castings. Now, what's the best way to use the castings? 
and can we give them to our plants and fruit trees? How do you apply it? Now, look, worm castings are absolutely fabulous. They're a natural manure from those fantastic little workers that we need as many as we can of in our soil. Way you use them, well, look, you can do it in multiple ways, but incorporating worm castings at about 50% with the topsoil and digging it into the top sort of 100 mil layer or so of the soil is a fantastic way to go. It transforms the nutrient base that sits in the soil and, and it's just so much richer and hardier and your plants will love you for it. And you can use it on fruit trees, You're fantastic on vegetables. You can even use it as a little, uh, like a little mulch layer over the top of indoor plants or pot plants that have had this sort of compacting where they start to, to, to shrink down in the pot. So there's a few different suggestions there, but hey, look, you've got a worm farm. That's fantastic. Well done, Rita, and thanks very much for your question. We're heading up to Sydney. Hello, Nat. She's, got a, she's had a peace lily for about four to five years and it's never flowered. Now it gets morning sun and it's watered once a week. What could I be doing wrong and how can I make her flower? Well, I'm gonna share a secret with you. It's a bit of a, bit of a trick that the nurserymen use. Um, they don't do it exactly this way. This is my version of it. But um, the best thing you can do is grab yourself a bunch of bananas. Sit down, eat three of the bananas, all right? Take the skin and you pop it in around the base of your spathophyllum. Then you get a plastic bag and you put it over the top of the plant and you pull it down and you hold it down really tight. And then you leave it there for about five days. Now you might be thinking, what on earth am I suggesting? Well, what I'm suggesting here is the banana skin as it breaks down releases ethylene gas. And ethylene gas changes the atmosphere in around the, 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 a number of plants to be quite honest, not just spathophyllums. And what it does is it triggers the flowering and you should get three to five flowers start coming out of that plant immediately after. But after five days, pull the plastic bag off. You can leave the banana skins there. They're only gonna break down and put a bit of potassium into the soil. Um, but it's a bit of a cheat, I suppose, is the best way to describe it. I hope that helps you, Nat. Uh, and I hope you like bananas, the more the merrier. Uh, Lisa, we're not sure where you're from. What can I plant on top of dahlias to bloom without taking the dahlias out, without new top plants disrupting the tubers? I think you're talking about multi-tiering your garden bed to try and get something over the top. Now, dahlias love full sun. That's the first thing you need to know. They, in real extreme conditions, a bit of afternoon shade is probably ideal. Morning sunlight's okay but you don't want too much shade. Otherwise, they're gonna stretch out, they become floppy, and some of those big flower-headed ones, they don't have enough strength, so literally the plant will just snap, uh, particularly with the first strong winds that go through. So my answer to you is that you really probably should be looking at keeping them in full sun. It's a really important part of it. I hope this helps you. Um, love dailies. Mine in the garden at my place are looking fantastic at the moment. Albeit I do have some pest problems at present and I'll tell you a little bit more about those and how I'm solving them in the first episode of The Garden Gurus, which will come up on the 27th of February. We've just announced it. I hope that you can tune in with us there when we're back on Channel 9. Now, Kerry is in Albion Park in New South Wales. She's got a two metre fence with a very narrow retaining wall south. It gets sun mainly in the spring and the summer. You want to plant something that grows up to a metre, has a scent. Now, it is very narrow and uh, there's not much depth. What would I suggest? I would suggest you consider, and you'll have to hedge them to, to get the right effect, 
but I would suggest you go for gardenias because gardenias love being hedged like that. They, they do like growing flat against a fence and if there's some warmth off that fence, it'll encourage them to grow quite well. But you'll end up with the benefit of those beautiful gardenia fragrances. And I think that, that despite the fact it needs a little bit of work, it'll look sensational. So that's my suggestion, Kerry. Hope that helps. Julie's in Mandra in Western Australia. My fig tree does not fruit, it's a white genoa. The tree's large, it's five years old, and you have pruned it. Well, that's pretty good. The trick with figs, and I've got a tree full of figs at the moment. Um, it did not fruit two years ago, because I was encouraging it to grow, and I just gave it a lot of water and a lot of nutrient, and it did not produce any fruit. This year, no water, no nutrient, laden with fruit, and there's a message in this. Fruit trees produce fruit to reproduce the species. It's just mother nature at her very best. So if the plant is really healthy, really happy, getting lots of nutrients, lots of water, there's no need to put any energy into reproducing, you know, protecting the species and continuing on. It's time in that situation for it to grow big and strong and lush and use all those nutrients while it, while it can. So my suggestion to you, Julie, is Find a way to back the water off that tree. Don't give it any water. Even if it's looking really stressed and even if it's kind of wilting at times, that's okay. It'll produce lots of really good fruit and you should be fine. Now, Bernie's in Melbourne. Bernie, um, thanks for your question. Now, what are the best deciduous trees in a one metre by three metre space on the west side of a house? It needs to create shade for windows. Now, one metre to put a tree in is pretty much crazy. I'm not sure I would recommend anything. You can put some things in like um, uh, some of those sort of smaller trees. Um, there are a couple of dwarf um, crepe myrtles that might work. Uh, if it's in a shaded kind of spot, you might find that the um, Japanese maples might go in there. Again, you've got to be looking for dwarf trees because it's not a lot of room. That one metre really worries me. Um, and of course, you're, you're wanting to really have something that's gonna grow upwards as well. So it's quite a dilemma that you've got on your hands. You may well be um, stuck with, with picking the right plant for that sort of space. My concern would be if it's one metre from the edge of the garden bed to the wall, and most trees are gonna grow a trunk at least, you know, I don't know, 400 mil, 500 mil wide when they're mature, you're gonna crack a wall or you're gonna lift all the pathway up. So it's not necessarily the wisest thing to be trying to get some trees down there. One other thing I, I did see, and, and it can be manipulated this way, still eventually going to be a bit of a problem from the point of view of the size of the trunk, is a spalliard avocados. And you can get some dwarf ones. And that might be an, op op an option for you if you can pin them against the wall. So I hope that helps, Bernie. It's a bit of a difficult one, that, that one, mate. I, I'm not sure what else I can suggest. Danielle is in Brisbane. Hello, Danielle. Our mango tree is not growing and it's staying around 10 foot tall and it's been this way for years. It produces very little fruit um, every two years and you're worried about the ground below it being too wet. I've got some great ideas for you, Danielle. First thing I'm going to say to you is that um, you should go and get yourself a pipe, not a plastic pipe, ideally a metal pipe, and wants to be at least a couple of metres in length and grab yourself a mallet and take it around the outside of the tree and punch some holes in the ground, pull it out, bang on the end of the pipe so the soil falls out and doesn't go back down the hole. And what you wanna do is you wanna ideally get seven or eight of those holes. Then what you wanna put down that hole 
is something called amorphic silica. I'm going to talk about this a lot in the next 12 months, but it's a highly absorbent material. And when you put it down the hole, it improves the aeration into the soil. It holds nutrient and moisture, but it increases the air filled porosity. This encourages really strong root growth, which will stimulate a takeoff in the growth of your, of your mango tree. So something like amorphic silica, which is known, you'll be able to find it very soon, is a product called Mineral Magic. I hope that helps you. Um, keep your eye out for it. It'll make the world of difference to, to the health of the tree. This is the classic thing about if you can get your soil right, get the air in the soil, the nutrients and the moisture right, and of course, most importantly, have your microbial, um, your whole ecosystem of microbes, all those little micro micro um, organisms such as things like bacteria and fungi and, and then some of the bigger ones like worms, they're all everywhere in that soil. You know your soil's healthy, you know your plants are going to grow really well. hope that helps. Mangoes this time of the year, fruit's coming on. For those of you who've already got fruit, half your luck. Mine's a few, probably few months down the line yet, maybe two. So I've got a bit of time to go. Now remember folks, if you've got a question, let us know where you're from, the state and the suburb ideally. And nine times out of 10, I can pick where you are and I should be able to help. And of course, if there's anything that you like about the show, like the fact that we're here on Friday evening, um, hit like on your, on your uh, button there and, and let everybody know. It shares it with your friends and it gives us a lot of motivation to keep doing all this great work we've been doing. Um, now, earlier today, I caught up with the marketing manager of Evergreen Garden Care, Narelle Pert. Now, she, you, you'll know uh, Evergreen. They're the people behind Love the Garden. They've got some great garden products. Uh, Narelle, however, revealed a slight weakness in her... Uh, in her plant care techniques. And she's gonna give you some suggestions on the best way to revive your indoor plants. Here's what we spoke about. Thanks for joining us this morning, Narelle. It's great to see you. How's everything going over there? You're in New South Wales, right? Yeah, we're in New South Wales. So, um, oh, look, it's not, not too bad. It's life as we know it now. So. Yeah, well, certainly, <laughs> obviously, from a COVID point of view, things seem to be getting a lot better there, which is great. But from an environment point of view, you've had a lot of you've had quite a wet summer, haven't you? Yeah, it has been wet and not as not as hot, hot as in the past. Um, yeah, very very wet. In fact. I'm, I'm actually hearing from a lot of um, a lot of uh, people who are sort of garden gurus friends that um, the biggest challenge outdoors is actually uh, keeping everything in shape. So there's a lot of trimming and shaping and mowing going on at the moment to keep the garden because the conditions are probably perfect for growth. But indoors, we're coming out of Christmas time, and this is always a significant challenge for us, isn't it? It's um, it's usually when uh, that that beautiful indoor plant that you got, or maybe the one that you had in the office, you're away, and um, it starts to get a little bit of a um, little bit of neglect. Yeah. So um, yeah, on that, so we um had an office shut down for about three weeks over Christmas, and so I went off and had a lovely break and didn't uh-huh. think about work at all um, and then I came back to oh no very very sad <laughs> looking peacefully and she was as beautiful as this one oh no and I'm absolutely gutted um so I was sort of toying um you know with the team of do I just throw it in the bin and buy a new one or do I back my products and my knowledge of indoor plants and yeah. try to resurrect it and see, see and how is that, it goes. So is that going to be the goal? You're going to you're going to set out to bring it back from the dead? Yes, I am. 
Wow. Let's so what, can... <laughs> what, what, what are the steps going to be? Yeah, so, so what I'm going to need to do is um, firstly, I'll take it out of this pretty pod for now. Yeah. Um, I can't see here. There's still um, some, some green um, growth here, so I can yep. see it's still alive. But the top, um, the top of it sounds, sounds pretty dry and crispy, though. Oh, it's very crunchy, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the roots, the roots are okay. They're, they're some white and firm. Um, so I'm thinking that, you know, there's still enough life in it to, to give it a go. Yeah. Um, so what I'm going to do is um, trim some of the – I'll do a few of them now, but trim the leaves down to where I can see that it's not so crusty and that there is still that healthy – if you can call it healthy <laughs> – um, growth there, yeah, um, and then repot it into something a little bit bigger. It was due to be repotted anyway into that. Yep. With my fabulous um, indoor Osmocote indoor potting mix. And Narelle, um, that so potting is, mix is pretty good because of the fungus gnat issue because you're not using organics in there. One of the biggest complaints we get is people saying, I've got these little black flies flying around and of course they're feeding off all the organic material of traditional potting mixes. This is why you go for the indoor potting mix, right? Because you're using a coir base, is that right? That's right, yeah. It's a, a coir and sphagnum base so that um, is less prone to attract the fungus gnats. Yep. Um, many people have sort of said that it um, completely has eliminated their, their problems. So it's... Um, to here. Um, I don't think there's any fungus gnats alive in this plant at the moment. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll tell you that's a big concern for me. Um, so I'll be repotting it in um, in my indoor potting mix. Um, the other good thing about this is it does um, retain moisture well, so um, I won't have to probably water it as much as otherwise, um, but I will be keeping an eye on that and making sure it does get water when it needs it because it definitely needs some hydration. You've got a wetting agent in that as well, haven't you? Um, no, not this one. Doesn't have wetting agent. Okay, so it's got pretty much everything else you could ever think of, including controlled release fertilizer. Yep. That is correct. So it feeds for up to six months mm -hmm. um, with the Osmocote controlled release fertilizer. So that okay. should um, give it a, give some nutrients. And what about pour and feed? Is that going to help this one to to bounce back? Do you think? Um, absolutely. So that should give it some, um, hopefully, some fast growth. It'll get straight straight to the roots. Yeah. Um, so I apply it and, and hopefully see some results pretty quickly. What I'll is, be doing that every yeah. I was going to say, what is pour and feed? Just, just run through what makes it so special because this is basically, there's no risk of you burning your plant because you didn't mix right. You've done all the mixing. That's right. So what makes it so special is that it's ready to use. So the, um, the measuring and the diluting has been done for you um, and it's in a bottle um, that's easy to handle. One's not open actually, but we've got a measuring cup um, and just pour it straight in. So there's no yep. messy water in hands or taking it outside and no risk of overdosing. Yep, and, um, the, and, the, and it's literally just, it's just the cup straight into the top of the pot. Cup straight into the top of the pot, yeah. Wow, that's, there's no, it's like foolproof. You can't make a mistake with that one. No, unless you neglect <laughs> your plants for three weeks. <laughs> it won't save it from that, but it should yeah. be able to help bring it back to life. So I'll be using that quite regularly. So just let me clarify. So you're going to cut the foliage off, pretty much bring it back yep. down to wherever there's a bit of green left in the plant, um, repot it into some good potting mix, um, and obviously the specialised potting mm -hmm. mix is the one to go for, and then um, stimulate the growth using uh, the pour and feed. That's correct, yeah. Right. 
Okay. And keep a very close eye on it, make sure that when the soil dries out that we give it a good water. So it's all about consistent moisture levels, but obviously the, the new potting mix is going to assist with that. So for that's anybody right. out there that's um, that's killed their plants during uh, <laughs> during the, the, the Christmas break or, or maybe just had a bit of a setback, because there's also been a lot of hot, dry conditions around, this is the perfect way to yeah. bring, your, bring your indoor plants back from the dead, basically, and, and get them back and growing pretty soon, hopefully. With any luck, yeah. Hopefully we can come back and report on... The progress. I think we need to follow up with you. <laughs> I'm not too. Yeah, I'm confident in my products. So I'm not too confident in my um <laughs> my attention span. Otherwise, I wouldn't have left it there in the first place. For three weeks. Um, yeah. Well, listen. Yeah. Th thanks so much for joining us this morning. It's um it's actually really timely advice, I would say, just at the moment for a lot of people because pretty much everybody's had that experience, and I know even. You know, in I've got a patio area out um, the back of my house where we don't get any natural rainfall going through, and the sprinklers haven't been on in that section. I've had a few plants that have really got some dry stress in there, and um, and I've been looking at them, saying, "Well, it's probably time to pot them up." But this is this is very timely to have pointed this out because it's exactly what I'll be doing this weekend. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing, make sure that um, they're not in too much direct light when they're in a state like this. Just to of course. Keep them a little bit protected because obviously. Um, in a poor state. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Well done, Narelle. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. I look forward to seeing you again in what well, I reckon three weeks' time. That should be back to back to normal. Oh, you might know that better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I, I hope I'm seeing some new shoots. Yep. We'll give it a couple of months. Fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see you then. Yep. Thanks very much for joining. All right. All right. Thanks, Trevor. Okay. This show is brought to you by the Garden Gurus and Evergreen Garden Care. Evergreen Garden Care and their market-leading brands are some of the most trusted consumer brands within the garden care market. They produce high-quality garden care products designed to help people create their own green oasis. Whether it's a garden, a balcony or potted indoor plants, they want to inspire anyone, anywhere to be able to easily create and maintain their own garden. To find out more about Evergreen Garden Care, head to www.lovethegarden.com. Well, how about that? There you go, some pretty good advice. I've got to say, that poor spathophyllum looked like it had really suffered. You know, they do, they are a lily, of course, and they do love water. So the key a lot of the time is just to rehydrate them and they'll get going again. Now we're gonna continue on with our questions and answers. This is your last chance. Get them in, give us a like, tell me where you're from. I wanna know the state and the suburb. Nat gave us a comment and thank you very very much, Nat. Um, hi Trev and the Garden Gurus team. Gotta remember that there's a team here all the time pulling this together. It's not uh, a one man show, it's uh, whole bunch of people who make it all happen and it wouldn't be without their support that I'm I'm very, very grateful for. Um, Nat said she'd like to say a big thank you for these live garden advice chats. They're awesome with full of full of great advice and tips. And it's right at your fingertips. Love your work. Keep it up. And I don't need Dr. Google now. Well, there you go. Dr. Google is never giving you the right advice anyway, let me assure you. Uh, James, come on, we'll keep moving along. James is in Mundaring. <clears throat> Mundaring is in Western Australia. It's in the hills. And uh, when you think of WA, a lot of people think of sandy garden soils, but Mundaring's quite heavy soils. Now, it's got a pot with a number of daffodils. The first year they bloomed and looked amazing. And since then they grow every spring, but they're not producing flowers. 
should I put them, should I pull them up and store them and replant them every year? And look, you know what, the answer is yes. Daffodils are definitely one of those plants that benefit from being lifted. And probably sort of December is when I lifted mine at home and uh, let them dry. So they sit in a cool, dry spot. And then um, we'll pop them into the crisper. We'll keep them nice and cool for about a month at about three degrees. And it's all about the chill factor. So when you get chilled conditions for a period of time, it really makes a big difference. Perth in, in Western Australia generally, it's too warm for a lot of these, these varieties. Um, albeit, you know, David made a very good point and there's a lot of varieties that he was selling in that collection that originate from South Africa. So very similar environments. So they're fine, but DAFs will definitely benefit from going into, being pulled out, um, going into a, a plastic bag, pop them in the, in the chiller, um, no colder than probably three or four degrees, really. Ideally keep them at that and they'll do very well. I hope that helps. Uh, now, Juanita is in Coburn in Victoria. Can fig trees grow from a cutting? And it's such a great question. Yes, they can. In fact, it's a little bit similar to the story I was telling you about frangipanis. Here's another plant. So fig trees are a ficus. Ficus have a white sap. So when you cut them, you'll see this white sap ooze out and a lot of it. And the best thing you can do is cut all the leaves off the, off the cuttings. The cutting should be about this long. Cut all your leaves off, lay it down on the ground, let all that sap dry. Might be 24 hours, might be 48 hours, depending on how warm your conditions are. Then what you do is you take, with figs, you take the cutting and you pop it into a pot. You don't want a big pot, you want a small pot and you want it full of coarse river sand with maybe just a little bit of, of cocoa peat in it. Now, the trick is to keep that nice and moist and basically you've just got that stick sitting in there and within about three to four weeks, it'll drop roots out of the bottom and then the leaves will start appearing out of the top and it's a brand new plant. It's a great way to pick the variety that you like, take a cutting and then plant that and grow it in your own garden. It's a really simple way. Um, Juanita says that um, she's got really extreme temperatures during summer. Don't worry about it because they do love hot weather and um, the hotter, uh, the drier, the better the crops. And that's the best bit of advice I can give you. And she said, enjoy your long weekend and we will be doing that for sure. Well, look, that's pretty much it. I think we're gonna wrap it now. I think the team here would like to go home. They've had a big week and uh, they've got a big weekend planned. Um, We'd really like to thank you, I suppose, firstly, for joining us. It's a, a pleasure bringing this show to you and it's a pleasure answering your questions, having that chance to interact in a one-on-one -on -one basis. And if you could make sure you let your friends know that we do this and that we're, we'd welcome them to come along and participate as well. Building the audiences really helps. Michaela is going to send out um, to our winners of the five Mr Fothergill's Packet Seeds a note after today's show. As I mentioned, the Garden Gurus Autumn Series is going to be on Channel 9. It starts on the 27th of February. And remember, you can always jump onto our website and catch up on previous stories. The website's an amazing resource if you're growing things and you want to learn a little bit more about gardening. And you can also watch whole programs on uh, the YouTube channel. And, and if you want to catch up, you can always go to 9now.com .au as well. We've got a whole bunch of programs that the team here at Guru Productions produce. One more thing, you can listen back to today's live stream and catch up on previous episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and, of course, Podbean. And I can't wait to see you again next Friday. That's at 7pm Australian Eastern Daylight Time. Happy gardening. Have a wonderful weekend. The Garden Gurus is back on your screens this weekend. 
Tune in to Nine and Nine HD this Saturday at 4.30pm across all states. And if you'd like to catch up on the previous episode, tune in to Nine Life this Saturday at 5pm. When in doubt, make sure you check your local TV guide. I've got my rig and I'm ready to go.